If anybody wants access to the other 29, just um, let me know. I don't know if any of you have heard um, of a famous poet in the 16th century called Edmund Spencer. Edmund Spencer wrote an allegory called The Fairy Queen about the true virtues of holiness, temperance, chastity, friendship, justice, and courtesy. And he set them out in six books. And he published his first book in 1590, and he gave it to Queen Elizabeth I as a gift. In one of these six books, the one on holiness, the church is depicted as a beautiful lady, and in this there is a knight called the Red Cross Knight. And the the beautiful lady depicts the church, and the Red Cross Knight depicts the Christian you or me. At one point in his story, an evil enchantress deceives the Red Cross Knight into thinking that the lady has deserted him. So he strikes off on his own. Off he goes. And he meets another beautiful lady with whom he comes into this wood and starts to sit underneath this tree with her. And he looks at her. She's beautiful, but suddenly he hears a voice shouting through the forest, telling him to flee at once and not to buy into the pleasures that this lady was offering him. At first, he was alerted and was about to get up and leave, and he looked down again at her, and he was completely overcome by her beauty. And he was just about to touch her when suddenly the tree that he was lying under with her, spoke to him and said, I was once a man, but a beguiling witch, disguised as a beautiful young lady, had transformed me into this tree. I hate being a tree. It's cold. I lose my leaves. It gets hot in summer, and I can't move. And he says that he wished he'd never touched the lady that the Red Cross Knight was about to touch. And in Spencer's words, this is what the tree said. A filthy, foul old woman I did view, that ever to have touched her, I did really rue. At that point of the touch, that person had turned into the tree. Now the point that Spencer was making is really simple. Sin always promises, but it never pays. It never does. Sin disguises itself as something really attractive, refreshing and rewarding, but underneath the false exterior, sin is filthy and foul, and those who sport and entertain it will only know regret. This is the great warning to the church at Pergamos that we're looking at today. Don't compromise your faith. That's what Jesus was saying to the church at Pergamon. Don't compromise your faith. Don't flirt with temptation. It'll only lead to sin. 
as the writer Paul to the Galatians said, live and walk in the Spirit, follow the Spirit, and then you will not gratify the flesh. Follow Jesus. So in the last four weeks, this is the fourth week, sorry, you've heard messages about three of the seven churches. You heard a message preached by Roland on the Ephesian church, and that was a loveless church. It was a church that was doing all the things, but had no heart. It was all duty. The second one was the church in Smyrna that Howard spoke about, and that was a persecuted church which was standing firm. And last week, Howard spoke about a church which had a plumbing problem, the church at Laodicea. You might remember, they had a lukewarm faith. And it was characterized by a sort of a smugness and a sort of self-satisfaction with who they were. And Pergamon today, if I was to put a heading to it, is a compromising church. Some people, some Christians in Pergamon had slipped into the behavior of imbibing societal values and bringing those values into the church. As a friend of mine once said, the problem with the church, Lorne, is there's too much of the world in the church and not enough church in the world. So let's look a little bit closer at the Church of Pergamon and to see what we can learn from this as Christians. It's interesting, isn't it, that so many of the letters of Paul and the letters of Revelation are addressed to Christians, not to non-Christians. So it's just as much addressed to us as it is to anyone else. In fact, I note in verse 17, it says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, Pergamon, first of all, you need to know a little bit of background about Pergamon. Pergamon was a really important city in Asia Minor. It was, in fact, really the capital. Ephesus was probably the economic center, but Pergamon was probably the administrative, the cultural, and the religious center of Asia Minor. Culturally, it boasted the biggest library in Asia. It had over 200,000 books in it. It was very cultural. It had an amphitheater where there was lots of plays and things like that, a lot of festivities. Um, uh, uh, Administratively, it had become the center of the Roman... um, It it was the capital city of Asia Minor as far as Rome was concerned. All the troops were there. There was a, a, um, I don't know what you call a sub-emperor or whatever you call him was there. The administrative center was there, full of Romans. And religiously, it was dominated by two shrines. There was one shrine to a healing god called Ausculpius and another shrine to the Roman emperor. And emperor worship was big in those days. You worshipped the emperor. He was the god. Now, these two shrines were on top of the hill overlooking Pergamon. It was like this spiritual atmosphere was over the city. And it kind of dominated the life of people living in Pergamon. But, but, the word of God had been birthed in Pergamon. There was a church there. Paul and probably other people had preached the gospel in Pergamon. And Christians were gathering in each other's homes to worship and to read the letters that were being sent round by teachers 
and to hear the word of God and then to go out and the idea was for them to change the city as it is the idea that God has for us to change the city. They were to bloom where they had been planted, not to run away and escape and go and form a community somewhere to be. They were planted in that city and they were to infect it with the fragrance of the Holy Spirit. Jesus acknowledges two strengths there. The first strength is this. He says he knows and acknowledges the extremely difficult environment that they live in. This is what he says. You dwell where Satan's seat is. Wow. You dwell where Satan's seat is. Satan's seat is a reference to the spiritual powers that dominate the city. Firstly, that um, healing god, Ascalpius. Um, the actual image of Ascalpius was a snake. That was the image. And, of course, in Genesis, we know that Satan is depicted as a serpent. And, of course, at the end of the book of Revelation, Satan is referred to as that ancient serpent. And the second thing is there was emperor worship. It's as if, because the Romans had settled there and emperor worship was preeminent, it's as if Satan was blinding the eyes of the Christians, too, to the truth. Well, not so much to the Christians, but certainly to the people that Jesus is Lord. And, of course, we hear about a man called Antipas who was martyred there. And, of course, the Romans disliked the Christians. And so we have this difficult situation that the Christian community is living in. And secondly, he says to them, hold fast, you hold fast to my name and you have not denied my faith. This was a credit to them. Here the Christians were holding fast. They were taking on the name of Jesus. And of course the fate of Antipas illustrated that. You see, Christ's reputation really does matter. It was a time of gospel expansion. And the Holy Spirit was working through the local church to spread the flavor of God's love throughout the town. But there were problems, and we'll come to that in a minute. I don't know about you, but how do you feel? How, how do you feel about the reputation of Jesus yourself? Um, how do you fly the flag? How do we fly the flag of faith to our neighbours, to our friends, um, to the communities and the shops that we go to? How do we fly the flag of faith in our recreational clubs and in our sport clubs? How do we do that? So the Christians were commended for flying the flag, but some of them had a problem. And here's the problem. But, Jesus says, I've got a few things against you. You have some here who are holding to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the people of Israel so that they would eat food sacrificed to idols and practice fornication. So you also have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Let me explain. Balaam, if you might remember in the Old Testament, he was a soothsayer, a sorcerer in fact, and Balak, who was the king of the Moabites, 
went to him and said, look, I'll pay you a really large sum of money if you put a curse on the Israelites who are just coming out of the wilderness into our land. Go and curse them. He was frightened of them. So Balaam said, I'm not going to say anything before I've consulted with God. And he consulted with God, and the only thing that could come out of his mouth over the Israelites was blessings. So this sorcerer was just bringing blessings over the Israelites. And Balak got really cross with him, and he fired him. But Balaam, because he wanted the money, he went to Balak and said, look, I've got a cunning plan, my lord. Have you heard that before? Who says that? Baldrick, isn't it? i got a cunning plan, my lord. <laughs> and the cunning plan was, he said to the king, look, if you send some of the Moabite women into the community of faith, the men there will fall in love with them because they're so beautiful. And they will start eating the foods and they will start worshipping the idols that the Moabites worship. And Balak thought, that's a great idea, so he sent them in. This is what was happening in Pergamon. There were some teachers, some Nicolaitan teachers, who held a doctrine of the Nicolaitans, whose doctrines were incredibly questionable. And what they were trying to do, they were trying to address the problem, is how do you as Christians mix with all the people who are practicing these idol worship, emperor worship? How do you mix with them? And they were basically saying, look, you know, you need to kind of change color. You, when you go in there, you need to kind of infiltrate like a spy. And just join in with what they're doing, and eventually maybe they might come to know Jesus. So they went off, and they went to their festivals, they ate food, they drank wine, and they ended up practicing sexual immorality. They were tempted. You see, the Nicolaitan teachers had not taught them about God's judgment. It not taught them about holiness. They'd not taught them about standing out in the crowd. These Christians have become chameleon Christians. I used to live in Africa, and we get these beautiful little lizards called chameleons. And what happens with a chameleon is they change color according to the background that they're on. So if you put a chameleon on a gray twig, it turns gray. If you put a chameleon on a, a green leaf, it turns green. Um, and these Christians were becoming chameleon Christians, just blending in. Do you get the point? It's so easy to blend in with the community. Somebody did an experiment once. They put a chameleon on a tartan rug, and it couldn't take the strain, and it exploded. <laughs> Sorry, that was a joke. I think the thing that I want to say here is that, um, as we talked about a little bit earlier, that temptation, once we entertain temptation, it leads down a path. James says this, Each person is tempted when they're dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then, they, then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. See, the consequences of sin is dire. See, God is holy, and a holy God can't actually live in the presence of sin. Well, sin can't live in the presence of a holy God. And so if people practice sin and don't repent, 
there's a day coming when it will all end. This is the judgment of God. And we know this because in that Israelite community that came out of the wilderness, 24,000 Israelites who'd been involved with the Moabite women were slaughtered by God. That's how severe it is. And Balaam himself was grabbed by the Israelite community and he was executed. He was killed with a sword. And it's the same today. You know, what we watch, what we read, what we listen to, where we go, what, who we assimilate with, it's not that we don't have friends who are not Christians. It's how, how much do we take part in those things that non-Christians do? How much do we take part? You know, we live in a very accessible age, free for all age. You know, with computers and smart TVs, and um, we can be led down a track of temptation and seduction so easily. You know, you hear of so many people, don't you, get caught up in immoral behavior because of the internet. And I, I've loved this, what Tom Wright says. Tom Wright says there's only one plan for sexual morality that God has, and that is the context of marriage between one woman and one man. That's it. That's where the pleasures and the joys of intimacy are found. I heard a, a couple who were married 60 years the other day saying they're more in love with each other now than they were when they first got married. Isn't that beautiful? And Tom Wright says this, sexual morality isn't a matter of a few ancient rules clung to by some rather conservative people which the rest of the society just moves on. No, it's rather a matter of the call of the creator God to faithful man plus woman marriage, reflecting the complementarity between heaven and earth themselves. Married love is a signpost to the faithfulness of the creator to his creation. How does the church stand firm in the world that we live in today? How do I stand firm in a conversation with someone who holds a different view? I mean, I've got uh, Christian friends who've said, oh, come on, Lorne, you know, the world's moved on. But, you know, Jesus, Je Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He hasn't changed. Um. A very helpful comment here, which I want to share with you, is this, that the reason why people actually, in the end, get involved in maybe immoral practices and things like that, or false gods, like materialism can be a false god, is because of what he calls love substitutes. The false belief that these will provide security, happiness, and intimacy they don't. They might provide instant gratification, but the end is only emptiness and tragedy. That's it. So John finishes his letter, good news. This is what he says. He says, repent or else. That's what he says. That's what Jesus says to the, to the people at Pergamon, the Christians, repent or else. As um, I think it was uh, 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 Milani read, you know, those who do these practices will not inherit eternal life. That's it. You know, don't read those books. Turn that television program off. 
don't entertain temptation. But here's the bit that I really like. He then says, what are the rewards for those who overcome temptation? You know, Jesus was tempted in every way that we are, yet he did not sin. What are the rewards for overcoming temptation? And he talks about hidden manna to eat and a white stone and a new name written on it, which no one knows except him who receives it. Firstly, the hidden manna. Remember in the wilderness when God sent the manna to feed the Israelites? The hidden manna here is the word of God, but also the bread of communion. He was talking to the fellowship about breaking bread together. Remember that Jesus is the bread of life. Remember what he did for you. This is one of the great rewards, is to break bread together uh, and to daily um, receive the manna of God's word. And friends, one of the things that I've learned over my life as a Christian is to take time to read God's word every day and to pray. Let the word of God transform us. I think we sang that in the song about the Holy Spirit, didn't we? The second thing was the white stone. What's this white stone with a new name written on it? What does it mean? It, uh, it, the, uh, the overriding word for this is personal intimacy. In Pergamon, if you got invited to a feast, you were given a white stone with a name written on it, which was your entry point for going into the feast. That was your ticket. And he's saying here, you've got um, a white stone and your name is written on it. He's saying, the new name that you have is that you are a son or a daughter of the living God. God knows your name. It's personal. It's a personal relationship. You know, when Jesus was baptized, right at the start of his ministry, the heavens opened and a voice said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. I was reading Colossians this morning and Paul calls the Christians beloved. We are the beloved but notice what happened when Jesus went into the wilderness straight after that. He was tempted. And the first temptation was this. If you are God's son, you can turn the stones into bread. He was getting Jesus to doubt that he had a personal relationship with his father. And that's what the devil wants to rob from you and from me, that we have a personal relationship. I was really challenged by this once um, and I was reading a little book by Henri Nouwen who was writing about the return of the prodigal son and in it he writes this home is the center of my being when I can hear that voice that Jesus heard you are my beloved in you I'm well pleased Jesus made it clear Henri Nouwen writes to me that the same voice he heard we can hear in our own hearts and I remember once challenging the Lord about this, and I said, Lord, would you call me by my name? Would you call me by my name? Do you remember when Jesus um, was at the tomb and Mary went there and Mary saw what she thought was the gardener and, um, and uh, she, you know, she asked him where and he said, Mary, and immediately she knew it was Jesus. And so I said, 
God, would you call me by my name? Little challenge. And I was getting on a bus in Toronto with Sue. We were going to see the Niagara Falls. And as I stepped up onto the steps, I heard this voice saying, Lorne, your name means best beloved. That's what my name means in Gaelic. It was the Lord speaking to me, saying, you're my beloved son. And how intimate is that? I don't know if you've brought a challenge to the Lord before and said, Lord, will you show me something of your grace? Will you show me the personal relationship that I have with you? Would you speak to me personally? As I finish, in the Fairy Queen, I know you were all saying, Lord, what happened to the Red Cross Knight, weren't you? I knew some of you were saying that. I could see, I could see that Margaret Scrivens was going to say, what happened to the Red Cross Knight? No, she wasn't. Well, the interesting thing in the story of the Red Cross Knight is that the Red Cross Knight was not abandoned. The beautiful lady represents the church actually met a lion. And the lion was a friendly lion. And with a little lamb she had called Una and this lion a big, fierce lion, but was a friendly lion, they left the country that they went, and they went off to find the Red Cross Knight. And that's a picture of Jesus, isn't it? Jesus is the Lion of Judah. He's the Lamb of God. And they find and save the Red Cross Knight. When temptation comes, my friends, call on the name of the Lord. Don't entertain it. Can you hear what the Spirit is saying to the church today? He's saying, fight the good fight of faith. Overcome temptation. Feed your soul on the goodness of my word, the living bread that Jesus gives you. Enjoy the intimacy of a relationship with Christ. He knows that you are his child. Enjoy it. He knows every situation that you're involved in. He's with you in it. He knows your name. He loves you. There is no love or no hope better than that, I can assure you. Amen. Shall we just pause for a minute?